Okay, we are in uh, Exodus chapter 4, finishing Exodus chapter 4. It's been three weeks in the two chapters, and actually four weeks. But it's actually a pretty important section because it sets up so much of the rest of the book of Exodus. Um, I mentioned last week some, oops, there we go. Hey. Um, leave that slightly open. Yeah, we're supposed to leave that slightly open. There's a bolt or something we lay on the ground or something. Um, this, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. Um, there's a part of it that's really odd that we have to try and figure out what is being said and what the purpose of it is. Um, we'll get to that in a second. And then we also have the issue of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And that's an issue that usually causes some concern among people that God is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. So um, last week or last couple weeks, as we know, Moses meets uh, God at the burning bush or at least an angel of the Lord or <clears throat> as was mentioned, might be a theophany, a pre-incarnate um, Christ coming to him. Um, but we see in God, and I think chapter 3 and 4 is really giving us clues into God's character, and I think you're going to see that to here today as well. We're being reintroduced to God. He's a holy God. He's a compassionate God. He's a covenant-keeping God. And, and then he reveals himself as the great I Am, <clears throat> the one who is self-existent and eternal and infinite, the one from whom all reality um, flows. And then he uh, gives Moses a challenge. And even that's interesting because not a challenge, a job. <clears throat> he, um, he tells Moses, you're the one who needs to go back and deliver the people. And it's interesting, God doesn't need Moses to do this. God could deliver his people without Moses' help. Right? All God has to do is say, okay, all the Egyptians stop breathing now. <laughs> right? That's all he has to do. And, and the people would be free to leave and do whatever, but he chooses to work through people, and that's a theme through the rest of Scripture. He works through, he works through people. Um, and Moses, of course, doesn't want to go back, and he begins to make excuses. And chapter 4 is really the excuse chapter. He says, well, who, well first he says, who am I, who are you? And then he says, um, what if they don't listen to me? And then he says, I'm not eloquent. And God says, well, I made your mouth. So he gives him the signs, he made your mouth. And then finally, we see for the first time in Scripture, the Lord being declared to be angry with somebody. God is angry with Moses because Moses says, please, Lord, send anyone else. Um, so that's where we are. And of course, we know then that God says to Moses, I'll send Aaron along with you. And that's where we pick up the story today. So let's go ahead and read starting in verse 18, uh, all the way down through the end of chapter 4. Moses, I mean, Exodus 4, 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law and said, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey 
and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. <clears throat> At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people, of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So there's a lot in this passage. Let's go ahead and start into it. Um, Moses has his call and the very first thing he does is he goes back to his father-in-law and asks for permission to leave. And then God um, talks to him and says, you can go ahead and go back. The people who are after you have already been um, that nobody, um, they're all dead. Everybody who wanted to harm you or seek your life. And then he goes back uh, with his, um, his wife and his sons and they ride on a donkey. All right, so he goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and asks for permission to leave. Isn't that kind of interesting? It's a different culture than our culture. Um, Moses is 80 years old, right? So here's an 80-year-old man, although um, we know that he comes from a long-lived family because later on they'll tell us that his grandpa lived to be 130 and so on. So um, he, he's 80. He's going to live for another 40 years. Uh, by the way, it's possible that Jethro is actually the same age or younger. I mean, we assume father-in-law always means a generation ahead, but Moses was 40 when he came and married the daughter. It's very possible that Jethro is roughly the same age, but it doesn't matter. Jethro is the father-in-law, and he says he has to ask permission to go. It's kind of like if you remember back to Laban and Jacob, right? Jacob is kind of worried that he's not going to be allowed to go or that his wife and children won't be allowed to go. So uh, basically he's asking Jethro for his permission to take his wife and children with him so that he can go with his, his family back to Egypt. And it seems like Jethro could have said no, and that would have been it, but God paves the way for that. Um, and he looks like he doesn't quite tell the truth, right? Behold, please let my, me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. That's not really why he's going back. He doesn't really give Jethro the whole story. That, though, is an idiomatic expression, I believe. That's what the commentary said. It was a way of saying to see if everything's okay. Yeah, it wasn't that he was worried that Aaron was dead. And by the way, he might have had more brothers, but rather to see how my people are doing. So 
you didn't have mail, you didn't have communication, right? So if you if you'd been gone a long time, it's kind of like, well, maybe everybody I know has died, so let me go back and check to see if they're still alive. And and he gets permission, and he heads back. And then the Lord meets him, and this is really an act of grace upon God's part. Um, he's already heading back to Egypt. And God says, go back. All the people, all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Do you think Moses was worried about that? Possibly. I, I think he was. Forty years seems like a long time when you're Matt's age or Anna's age, but 40 years doesn't seem that long when you look back on it, right? Um, I probably have told this story, but my grandpa, who was Swiss, uh, he was born in Switzerland, and about two weeks after his 18th birthday, he emigrated to the United States. The problem is, on his 18th birthday, he's supposed to go and join the military. Everybody has compulsory military service, all the men in Switzerland. So he actually kind of left the country without ever registering and going into the military. But he knew he was coming to the United States. So he came to the United States. I never asked him why, actually. But anyways, he came to the United States, lived here, had a great life, raised his family. And at about 75, he and Grandma wanted to go back to the old country. She was from... Germany, but right on the border of Switzerland. Their towns were only a few miles apart. And we find out that they're not planning to go back to his hometown, just hers. It's like, Grandpa, why don't you go back to your hometown? You know why he didn't want to go back to his hometown? He was afraid that if he went to Switzerland, they were going to make him serve two years in the army. <laughs> I kid you not. It was like, Grandpa, <laughs> that was 60 years ago. He was still worried about that. Moses is still concerned that if he goes back to Egypt, people are going to try and kill him. So God says, not going to happen. They're dead. You're free to go back. And I think that was just God being gracious. God didn't have to tell him that, but God does that. Um, and then we have this interesting picture of him putting his wife on the donkey and his sons. Moses has two sons. Everybody remember that? Um, he has um, Gershom and then what's the name of the other son? I should have that, but um, Gershom is the one that's mentioned and then the other one later. Um, Gershom is the firstborn. But when I saw that, put his wife on a donkey and head off, what do you picture? Mary and Joseph going to have Jesus and then probably fleeing into Egypt and going on, his wife and son going on a donkey down into Egypt. So, um, all right. And then it says, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Um, and the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, we're gonna talk about hardening, but I wanna postpone that to the very end. Okay, so we'll come back to that. This is a dramatic picture. Um, when you think of staff, what do you think of? Just a stick, right? Just a stick. 
It's a shepherd's staff. We, I think of the shepherd's crook. I doubt if that's what it was, but maybe it was. Who knows? Um, but this is now the staff of God. Pharaoh, uh, Moses is now commanded to go into Egypt and say um, something to, to, to the king, Pharaoh. The staff represents authority. Kings had scepters, right? Scepter is a staff. The king had a scepter or a staff, and it was the symbol of his authority. Moses is going to march up to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, perhaps the most powerful man in the world, carrying a staff. And, and Pharaoh is going to know what that means. I come with authority. Pharaoh doesn't know whose authority, but I come with authority. And we know that this is the staff of God. Mo, Pharaoh would have had his staff, and when he's holding that staff, everybody understands that he wields all the power of Egypt, right? When Moses is holding that staff, he's wielding some sort of power. There's some sort of authority that he's claiming. So we just see Mo, Moses walking in with a staff, you know, kind of like an old man who needs it to, to, to walk. <laughs> uh, yeah, not all old men need it to walk, but an old man who needs it to walk. That is not the case. This staff represents something, and it will be used all the way through. And that's why it's called the staff of God. This is not Moses's shepherd's staff anymore. This is the staff of God. And look at what he says to, uh, to um, Pharaoh. Thus says, verse 22, thus says the Lord. Okay. That's the first time in the Bible that phrase is used. We're going to see it a lot more. Thus says the Lord. What does thus says the Lord mean? This is what the Lord is saying. These are exact words from God. This is what my God has told you. And what, what God tells him is pretty amazing. Israel is my firstborn son. By the way, that is the only time in Scripture where that phrase is used. You can look it up. There's no other place where Israel's called God's firstborn son, but it is here. Israel is my firstborn son, and you need to let him go to serve me. If you refuse, I will kill your firstborn son. Look, this is going to be a dramatic scene. You're walking up to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, the powerful man in the world, most powerful man, with a staff, which means I come under authority, and you're going to walk up to him and say, I have a demand and a threat. Right? The demand is, you let, my, you let Israel go, and the threat is, if you don't, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. This is going to be a nice, calm little meeting. between. <laughs> this is an intense thing that God is asking Moses to do. Now, the Israelites' firstborn son was important, right? Firstborn son was, was, got a double share of the inheritance. What's interesting is God doesn't seem to put a whole lot of stock in firstborn, right? It sure didn't seem like it. He's, yeah, but you have Jacob and Esau, you have Ishmael and Isaac, you have, you go all the way through, and it's the firstborn seems to always be the one who gets, you know, even, um, even Joseph's sons. You know, he switches them, Ephraim and Manassas. Um, to the Egyptians, the firstborn son was even more important than that. The, the firstborn son was was uh, a very special 
um, almost sacred. And the Pharaoh's firstborn son, remember the Pharaoh is not just a man, he is he's a God. Not just a God in just not just God using a man to represent him. They saw Pharaoh as a God. And his firstborn son would be the one who would also then be the descendant of the God. To threaten to kill the firstborn son is an attack at the core of Egypt. I'm going to take out this one that should be the one who uh, is, becomes the God after you. This is a big threat. And of course, we know God carries through on it. That is, of course, the last plague, the plague of the Passover. So this is a pretty dramatic, pretty dramatic scene <laughs> walking in. Um, it's easy for us to just picture it kind of like from the Ten Commandments. Moses walks up and talks with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gets mad and he leaves. But uh, Pharaoh would have to be pretty upset after this conversation. God has to be protecting Moses. So any, any comments on that before we move on? Rod. Thinking of that, uh, God says there let, there'll be no other gods before men, and so when he's walking into Pharaoh, he's letting that be known that even though Pharaoh, you are God, you are not God, yeah. only God. And you know, there's instances where, like the Ark of the Covenant was um, in the hands of the Philistines, and they put it in the temple of their gods and the idols fell over and, and, uh, and worshiped the ark. Yeah, yeah. worshiped the ark. When, when Aaron made the golden calf, um, um, Moses comes down and he grinds up the calf. So the calf can't protect itself. He's not a god who protects himself. And then to add further insult to it, Moses grinds the calf, throws it in the water, makes the people drink it. They take it into their body and excrete it. And that even shows further, you know, what God thinks of other gods. Yeah, yeah. So. Very good. All right. Now we have this weird passage. <clears throat> Verse 34, 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay. What in the, what in the world is this? What is happening here? Um, just so you know, there's interpretive challenges. It's hard to know who it is that God is seeking to kill because of all the pronouns. It doesn't say he sought to kill Moses. It says he sought to put at a lodging place. The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. The last person that was mentioned was the firstborn. And so maybe it's referring back to that. But most people will say, no, here is the scene. Moses and Zipporah and their two sons are at, and I, I can't believe I don't have the name Anybody know Moses' other son's name? Matt? You failed me. Okay, you're supposed to know that. <clears throat> it, it's listed somewhere, but we have Gershom and then the other one. We'll just call him the other one. The, the four, what is it? 
Oh, the four of them are stopping at a lodging place and God meets them and tries to kill Moses. And Zipporah has to take and circumcise her son. Doesn't say which one. And then she takes the foreskin and puts it on Moses' feet and says, you're a bloody bridegroom to me. Okay. It's a weird story. It's really weird. Um, Probably, well, first of all, uh, if God wants to kill Moses, how, how hard is that for God? Not hard at all. Just say, your heart stops beating. That was your last breath. So in a sense, although I I think we're seeing it from Moses' or Zipporah's perspective, you know what this reminds me of is Jacob wrestling with God, right? Does God really need to wrestle all night? If God wants to pin you, is he going to pin you? And yet he lets Moses, I mean, uh, Jacob wrestle all night. And then Jacob refuses to let go until he gets the blessing. And God says, you've striven with God and man, and you have prevailed. There's something important that God is trying to teach here. So when I read this, I say, you know, if God wants to kill him, he can kill him. That's easy. Something is going on. We do not know what it was. Some people say it was a sickness. Moses got deathly ill. Um, one, one commentary I looked at said, where it said that God met him and the, the idea of to meet is to embrace, but a, a big hug. When, when Aaron met Moses, they probably embraced, you see somebody. So the idea would be that God grabbed a hold of Moses and was somehow physically restraining him or causing him not to be able to maybe move or be sick or something. And what's interesting is Zipporah's response, okay? Ladies, your husband's deathly ill. What's your first thought? I better circumcise my boys. <laughs> right? I mean, is that what you would do? No. Let's call the doctor. Let's do something. Um, but she immediately wants to circumcise her, her son. Doesn't say sons, but her son. But here's what we know. Moses' son has not been circumcised. We assume he's not an eight-day-old infant. Um, if you go back to Genesis, by the way, I don't have any insight. on Everything you say on this is just speculative. So you can speculate all you want on it. Um, Eliezer, there we go. Thank you very much. I knew somebody would pick it up for me. I feel really terrible. I should have looked that up. Um, go to Genesis 17. <clears throat> Verse 8. It's a little bit long passage, but I think it's important because this is where God makes the covenant. Remember, God is a covenant-keeping God. And he makes the covenant with Abraham. And he says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, and after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or born with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, 
both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now watch the next verse. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right. Who actually broke the covenant? Moses. Moses is a covenant breaker. Um, here's, the, here's my take. Speculative, but you do what you want to with it. You can study it on your own if you want. Moses circumcised Gershom, and Zipporah didn't like it. It was against their customs, and when, when Eliezer is born, they didn't circumcise him. Wasn't worth the fight. Wasn't worth dealing with a mad wife. And Moses becomes a covenant breaker. He's broken the covenant that God told them to enter into. And so Moses now is going back to lead the people. Right? And God says, no you don't. We have unfinished business. You, you have broken my covenant. And until you make this right, you're not fit to do anything. In fact, you should be killed because you have broken my covenant. I, I think once again we get an insight into who, who God is here. Yeah, Moses is this great man, but he's breaking God's covenant. And God expects something from his leaders, actually from his people, but especially his leaders. And Moses can't go back and be the leader of the people of God without his son being circumcised. So that's my take. You, you, can, you can do what you want to with it. There's a lot of... I said, there's all sorts of weird stuff that comes out of this, a lot of weird theology, but it certainly seems like the core of the issue is, is the circumcision. It seems like Zipporah knew the problem and that it made her mad. And by the way, Zipporah leaves. Uh, this may have broken up the marriage because Zipporah goes back. She doesn't go with Moses after this. It doesn't say it here, but we know that Later on, when Jethro comes, Zipporah comes with her. And then Moses marries another woman. We don't know if Zipporah died or if basically she just said, that's it, I can't deal with this anymore. But this is a pretty traumatic event for Moses. Adrian. Oh, okay. But the way that the language is, whether he married another woman, is some people still think that that refers to the poor. It may not have broken up the marriage. Oh, because he marries a Midianite woman. Yes. And yeah. And, and then you have, you have the Midianite, and there's another term for that. But there is some relationship between them. Um, and and the, the language is such, you look at other parts of the Bible, that, uh, that they're, they could be one and the same. Okay. And that's, that, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. Go ahead, Rod. Two thoughts. So one is, does that somewhat demonstrate the mercy of God in, in the, you know, he hasn't taken Moses' life. He's telling him, hey, this is what you've got to do to get it right. Yeah. And the second thought is um, a little different. Um, I'd hate to be thinking of an angry woman doing circumcision at the time. <laughs> yeah, but it is on her son, so, she, yeah. Actually, the whole thing is hard to imagine. So <laughs> we'll probably, especially if he's a little bit older, yeah. Yes. So... All right, we'll just leave that right there. Yeah, we, we're not going to spend more time with that thought. 
All right, and then we have the last part, but I think we'll get to that. I do want to talk about the hardening uh, because um, that is a difficult passage for a lot of people. It tells us, Moses says, I mean, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Um, There are, throughout now the rest of Exodus, 20 times where it'll tell us that Moses' heart, I mean, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And 10 of them, God says, I will harden his heart. And the other 10, it just either says Pharaoh hardens his heart or his heart was hardened. There's three different words for hardening. One of them means to become heavy and sensible or dull. So it's really a hardening in the sense of um, thickening. It's, it, we would say somebody has a thick skull, they become, they become stubborn. And sometimes it's used that way when it says Moses, a Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let the people go. That's hardened. He hardened his heart. Another one is that it's hard, severe, or fierce. Um, And then another one is to grow firm or strong. It seems to me they all say pretty much the same thing. Um, I think the problem with the passage it's, if it's a problem passage for you, it's because of this idea that God is taking Pharaoh and hardening his heart. And we see Pharaoh as a man who needs salvation, and now he is, in a sense, cut off from God. And so it strikes at a, a, a real, um, strikes at our sense of fairness, okay? But you cannot get around this passage. Now, when I was in high school, we were studying this passage with the youth pastor and um, great man, Sam Talbert. April remember Sam Talbert. Um, Sam was, I just love Sam. But his explanation for this was kind of interesting. He said, look, when it says it hardened, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God is like the sun and, and the, you have, uh, like if you take and put a crayon out in the sun, wax is going to melt. If you put concrete out in the sun, it's going to harden. So basically, the light of God, the presence of God caused Moses, for instance, to become softer, but it becomes, causes Pharaoh to become harder. It was a great explanation. And the other part of it was that, uh, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The problem is the Bible, it's a, it was a great explanation. It meant so I could read it and feel good about it. Hold on, I'll get you in a minute, Matt. But, but the problem is it's not what the scripture says. Pharaoh um, is hardened by God. And you cannot get away from that, no matter how much you say that he hardened his own heart. If you go to uh, Exodus uh, chapter 9, I believe it's chapter 9. And I want to say verse... Oh, crud. You know what? Um, go, go to Romans, actually, because Paul quotes this in Romans. Um, it's the exact same verse. I don't have the right reference there. I, I have it somewhere here. Um, oh, it was. It was Exodus 9.18, but that's fine. Uh, go to Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> Romans chapter 9 is where God lays out the idea of the sovereignty of God in salvation. 
and he says, um, talks about Israel who was, a, was chosen. They were given all these things. Uh, we're not going to go through the whole passage, but then it talks about how God makes choices. And it says in verse 12, the older shall serve the younger. Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. That's a hard verse. It's a hard verse to hear. And then verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul answers his own question by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Uh, God is not having mercy on Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is Exodus 9:18. For this very purpose I have raised you up, so that I may show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the Old Testament in Exodus, God hardens Pharaoh. In the New Testament, Paul makes it clear that this is exactly what it means to say. You cannot get away from it by trying some sort of trick. It means what it says. God hardens Pharaoh, and he, and he uh, doesn't harden other people. Go ahead, um, Matt. One thought that came to my mind about that term, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Well, think about, um, I think it was Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What, uh, what, are, what is uh, it that we deserve when we sin? Death? And uh, more broader term, judgment. Yeah. So one thought I've had is, could that hardening of the heart been a form of judgment on God's part towards Pharaoh? Yeah. And I think you're getting to the core of the the core of the issue. Go ahead, Rod. Well, <coughs> one thing we got to remember is that, that every human being is born into sin, and we never seek God. God seeks us. We never go out looking to come to God. God comes looking for us. Yeah. So our nature is never to to look to God. So God is just affirming in my mind in Pharaoh's situation that hey, you know, you know, you're never gonna come to me, therefore I'll harden your heart. Yeah. But it's still a hard passage to read, well, huh? Yes. And and I think as I thought about it, this is my take. Um, I, the, the passage says what it says. It's only a difficult passage if you have trouble accepting it. But what's interesting is there's, there's two words that I think we often uh, confuse. One is the word fair, and the other is the word just. We don't like this because God is not fair. He's treating Pharaoh differently than he's treating Moses. He's treating Israel different than he's treating Egypt, although later on he judges Israel as well. <clears throat> but in our minds, these two mean the same thing, but they really don't. Um, fair and just are not the same thing. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. Um, at school, I grade really fast. I'm a fast grader, and sometimes I make mistakes. So let's say, well, this probably could have happened. Emily and Hannah are in the uh, same class, they were. By the way, their writing is identical. I could never, in fact, maybe it was just one of them doing the writing for all of both of them and uh, photocopying it. I don't know, it was really freaky. It was like, okay, whose paper is whose here if they left their name off? Anyways, so Emily gets a 
it gets a, a problem marked wrong that Hannah gets marked right. So of course they bring their test up. And I look at Emily's and I say, well, here's the problem. It's really wrong. So Hannah got lucky. All right, now, what's the just thing to do? Take points away from Hannah, okay? Um, the fair thing to do is to either give them both points or take both take points away from both of them, right? Fair means we do the same thing. If I give points to the one, that's unjust, right? I've done something that's not right, okay? Same thing if we had a murderer who a judge let go, lets go for no good reason. It's one of those things where you go, how in the world do you take the evidence was all against him and the judge lets him off? Well, then the next criminal, the next murderer should be let off as well, right? And yet to let a murderer off is unjust. You can be perfectly fair and unjust. God never ever in the Bible, you can find it, I'd like to see it. He never claims to be fair. He simply claims to be just. God will do what is right. And when he does things that look unfair to us, it is a re reflection of his grace. Because through the cross, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. There is no problem with God judging Pharaoh. Everybody good with that? Remember, Pharaoh claims to be a god. He doesn't just claim to be any god. In Egypt, he was the great god or the perfect god. He was actually a combination of Ra, the sun god, and the goddess of death or the god of death. He had the power of life and death. He was worshipped as a god. He went out every morning and made sure that the sun rose. By the way, think about that when you come to the plague of darkness, right? Um, in some ways, all of the plagues, and not in some ways, all of the plagues are attacks on the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh is blaspheming every single day of his life. He is violating the very first command simply by breathing and accepting. You remember the story in, um, of Herod, who's making a speech and people start shouting out the voice of a god and not a man? Right? And what happens? He doesn't tell them to be quiet. And what does God do? Strikes him with worms and he dies. That's another really bizarre picture. But right there in front of everybody, all of a sudden worms start eating him up. Did God have the right to do that? Yes. yes. In other words, what God is doing by saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart is perfectly just. Pharaoh has spit in God's face every day of his life. And God is saying, I'm going to now judge you and make you harden you so that you do really stupid things. Read the you, The thing that's most amazing about the plagues is these horrible plagues come and it's obvious that God will do what he says and Pharaoh turns around and walks away as if it's not a big deal. Go back to those words for harden, become insensible or dull, uh, to become firm even at your hurt. And God is simply judging Pharaoh and Egypt, which he has a perfect right to do. So uh, be careful when you start thinking about this. Don't think about fairness. I know for us, that's a big deal, right? You raise children, 
What's one of the first comments? That's not fair. Um, you you want to have kids mad at you? Just don't be fair. That's why the idea of a teacher's pet is it, done that still. You hear teacher's pet, and unless you were the teacher's pet, it's like, I hate that. Whoever that teacher's pet was, I don't even remember. I don't like that person right? because it wasn't fair. But God isn't being fair here. He's being perfectly just. And he's judging a man who is acting in ways that, that, that say, I am God, and I am more important than the God of the Hebrews. So um, he does harden Pharaoh's heart, <clears throat> but it is the proper response to the, to the sin that Pharaoh has done over the course of his life. So that's my take. Matt, I don't know if I ever got back to you, so... Yeah. Not just the plagues that uh, Pharaoh endured, but also the hardening of his heart. <laughs> I just kind of view it as God, say, God saying, uh, you think you're hot stuff claiming to be a God? Let me show you just how much of a God you really are. Exactly. <laughs> and he's going to attack the gods. He's going to basically wage war against the gods of Egypt through the plagues. And we'll see that. Uh, by the way, the Bible also talks about um, in Romans that as a society moves further away from God, God finally gives them over to what it is that they are going for. And we are, I think, seeing that very clearly in our country, where good becomes evil, um, insolence becomes accepted, homosexuality is considered normal, uh, perversions of all kinds, and people then begin to go back and worship worship idols and all the rest, and you see that in some of the environmental stuff where, you know, the earth has become a goddess again. And, 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 and God says, this is what you want, I'll let you do that. And he takes away his restraining influence and we become hard, hardened in our sin. So um, it's still a difficult thought to me that God takes and says, this one I show my mercy on and this one I don't, but that's what the Bible claims. And it's perfectly just for God to do that because of what his son did at the cross. So, all right, any other comments before we go? I know some of you, I'm sure, have thought about that passage. It's hard not to. At some point, you read through it. Sometimes we just read over things real quick if we don't like them. But if you ponder it, you start to have, it messes with your mind sometimes. Go ahead, Bonnie. Yeah. And then the other thing that struck me is that justice is only justice because God says it's justice. Period. No question about that. Yeah. And that's what God claims is to be perfectly just in all his dealings. Will not the judge of all the earth judge rightly? The, the conflict becomes how does God deal with judge sin when he also allows sin to accomplish his purpose? Yeah. And uh, Joseph is the example of that when he is finally confronts his brothers after he was the prime minister of Egypt, and he said, "You cast me into the uh, pit and sold me into slavery, and that was evil, but God meant it for good." And so, you know, there's there's conflict right there between 
how is God using that sin to benefit the people when he puts them in Israel and takes them, you know, allows them to be blessed and grow and so forth and saves them from the heart, uh, famine. Yeah. So, you know, there's conflict yeah. in, when God uses sin and understanding how that happens and how God remains sinless in doing that. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Those are the those are the questions that come up. Um, what's interesting is that God doesn't judge very many sins immediately, right? God is patient. Um, um, Romans says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, but it doesn't lead everybody to repentance. For people who get away with sin, becomes a habit, and they become more sinful. Um, if if the first time you sinned, God said, okay, the wages of sin is death and you die, there would be nobody, right? We, we would have died out immediately. There would be no human race. And most of the time, it's a, it's a kindness of God for us to be judged for our sins quickly, at least a, a minor judgment. Um, it's, it's not to allow somebody to go for a long period of time. In a sense, God's... Uh, if you, you want to be upset with God, it's that he let Pharaoh be defiant for so long before he finally judged him. Because Pharaoh grew up generations believing that they were God on earth. And now it's time to stop that. So, okay. Go ahead, Rod. Uh, when you look at God and sin, God's purpose is being served, just like with Joseph. And John Piper made this comment that when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, God did not react to that and say, oh no, now I've got to make do good by Joseph and make him the, the prime minister. No, he was prime minister in the plan of God long before that incident happened. Yeah. And you see the same thing in the, the uh, Christmas story where Herod is making decisions that he thinks are going to kill, but instead fulfill all of the prophecies. So, okay. All right. Well, that's something to, to chew on anyways. But by the way, this then, another attribute of God, the sovereignty of God. Somebody said, it was kind of an interesting quote, comment, that uh, some people would think that John Calvin slipped back into time and rewrote Exodus, right? Because this sounds like Calvinist theology. Said, no, that's been in there since the very beginning, right? This is something that God presents right now, and like Rod has said, with, with Joseph as well, that God uses people for his purposes. He judges people as he sees fit, and he chooses those whom he chooses. And that has been in the Bible since the very, very beginning. Um, we see it all the way through. So, all right, let's close in prayer.